if we look forward five, ten years, based upon what you're seeing now, you know, anyone got any thoughts of what the biomedical laboratory might look like in the future, and therefore what kind of skills our scientists are going to need to deal with that? I believe the bioanalysts of the future need more biological skills, yeah. more understanding. Clearly, we have addressed this before of the large molecules. I do not see that there is a lack of skill in instrumentation. Whoever learned tandem MS can also learn high-resolution mass spectrometry. It's, it's, it's just another training. I do not see a demand pushing the training towards uh, high-resolution mass spectrometry or requesting uh, uh, conferences to build up uh, for high-resolution mass spectrometry. I think this can be learned on the job. But I think what, what most of us are lacking is the experience with the large molecules. And... Um, it's, it, it, it would be very advantageous uh, of advantage if in a company there is a strong bioanalytical group and having interfaces to, to biological groups or to protein people and having a, a good exchange with them. So, so I can't help but think that maybe in the future we're talking about a convergence or coming together those two parts of many organizations. You have a biological organization that focuses on biologics and you have organizations focus on small molecule, primarily mass spec as a technology platform. I just, when I think about the tools such as antibody capture approaches, you need an innate knowledge of what you're trying to capture and, and, and the relationship of, of the binding sites. And then you're bringing on top of that the chromatographic perspectives and of course the mass, mass spectrometry. So invariably those two skill sets have to merge if we're going to be utilizing those tools in the future. That's the same thing as in our organization. So we have a group that do small molecule. Uh, we have a large group that do LBA. And when we actually build the uh, LBA mass spec group, we actually move people from the small molecule mass spec group into the LBA mass spec group. So they know how to handle the proteins, the ADCs, and then have all the regulatory skill sets of a mass spec person, right? Um, it's, to go back to the other aspect is that uh, that's the same with, um, with polynucleic acids is also very different thinking process and that's not something that most organizations really have. Um, and uh, um, I, I disagree with the, with the high-res mass spec because I think it's, it's not so, I think superficially it's easy, but that's deep nice. down it's actually quite, it's easy to make mistakes you don't know, I found. Yeah, it needs knowledge, of course, yeah. but uh, a lot can be learned from the literature and, it, and a lot will be learned by doing it. That's clear. But I mean, uh, some of us or most of us, they started with GC probably, then they got a mass spectrometric detector, the next step was tandem MS. We learned all of this, so I mean, uh, the people will learn high resolution mass spectrometry in the same way. I have no doubt about it. But to, to me, at least, being a mass spectrometrist, the, the bigger issue is, is, is all the, the biological background and, and the protein knowledge. And I think uh, this is really needed to build up this knowledge. Yeah. But the bioanalysts involved in, in small molecules, I mean, the most skilled ones have, I, I believe, a chemistry or analytical chemistry background. And that is absolutely, it's very good for small molecules, but it's not uh, good enough for large molecules where uh, molecular <laughs> biology or, or, or biochemistry is more, is more important. So I believe we can train retrospectively and try to make good 
mass spectrometry is propagating in, in the large molecule, in the small molecule, sorry, being able to understand what uh, large molecules are and how to develop those, uh, those drugs and, and to, I mean, develop methods, biological methods, which can provide uh, useful data to our, our projects. I think it's absolutely important. What I can, I can imagine is that in, in 10 or 20 years' time, we will not have uh, small molecule BA units and or large molecule BA units. We will have biomedical units able to, to, to deal with, uh, uh, I mean, all the analytes we will have to analyze. And even do we still call it bioanalytical unit? Maybe it's yeah. just an analytical unit where you yeah. as well focus on quantitative aspect with some people and with some other people you focus on the qualitative aspects. Yeah. Because I think we approach all the problems, all the people sitting here on the table have a background from mass spectrometry. If you are a protein chemist, you didn't start with mass spectrometry, you started with other type of uh, approaches like gel electrophoresis and these things like that. If you are in the genomics, you start with PCR, with Western, with southern blots, all these type of technologies. And it's bringing these two worlds together, which is, which is not always easy because the way we are organized at this moment is quite, we keep it separate. And now we try, based on an individual basis, we try to merge. Non-xenobiotics as well, so biomarkers and endogenous molecules that are being measured in the same groups now as well. That one word, biomarkers, opens up such a uh, massive <laughs> realm. Putative biomarkers. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm with you completely. And then this piece around the analytical skill set, the understanding of biology, it comes from the way we collect samples to how we measure those samples to what the data actually means when it goes out. And a bioanalytical individual who can provide some, some real data and information about what it actually means. What the, because we can develop, validate, use all these terms, but if we actually don't know what the data really means, it's lost. Yeah. Mm. And then another aspect I think which is important, how can you do that and for so many programs? If I see we are busy in Alzheimer, we are busy in HIV, in HCV, we have so many different programs. You cannot master all these all these aspects at the, at the level of the biology, so you have you will have to make choices and do and focus on on, on a few aspects and and have other people focus on other aspects. I think I think not one person on yeah not one head of biology bioanalytical group can master all these different type of biologies. So I wonder if there's something to be said for actually having individuals who are focusing from a portfolio perspective on those key areas because when you think about the biology component. It takes away, it, you, you need that understanding of what is happening disease state-wise, what's happening biology, and invariably, as you rightly point out, being, you can't dilute yourself so thin to cover everything and be focused on the analytical platform. You're 100% right, because um, the PD component to it, whether it's small molecule, whether it's biologics, whether it's oligos, they all very similar. So when you start looking at saying that, hey, you know, I have to do PK of my small molecule, PK of my oligos, PKs of my ADCs, but on parallel, you're doing P, PD, right? And your PD is essentially all the same. So it's actually it's a really interesting problems we have now that we never really had two years ago, 10 years ago. So if we're seeing these new kinds of um, convergence of what, what were different parts of the business before coming in to the shop around bioanalysis, how does that affect the outsourcing model? You know, how... how What's the outsourcing model going to look like in 10 years' time if, if bioanalysts need these 
broader skill sets, how does that affect the, the current commoditized small molecule outsourcing model? Well, I think, you know, it sounds like most CROs are trying to do both and build that skill. So, I mean, I think the CROs are going to follow pharma, where, you know, the need has been to, for small molecule people to start doing large molecule things. And I think CROs are going to follow, because the pharma's going to need it, and pharma's not willing to pay for that in-house. Exactly. So, so as a CRO, we need to, we have no choice, we need to follow that. But will the CRO ever be to the same extent involved in the biology as you can be in a pharma? How, how do you see that and uh, yeah, yeah. How, I mean, how you organize that? I, I guess what CROs are good at doing is building packages of data. I, I mean, I would use immunogenicity analysis as a good example of this, of building a package of data to understand immunogenicity. So we'll develop PK assays, we'll develop anti-drug antibody assays, we'll develop <coughs> PD assays. Mm -hmm. And then we will generate those data sets to interpret what's happening with immunogenicity. So CROs yeah. can build that expertise, they can generate those data sets. It will be that collaboration with the industry, with the CRO working with the pharma, to actually enable that interpretation. And we have different models with different size clients. I think, I think it will, will vary from client to client, which is a very big challenge for CROs but it, it does happen and we can achieve it. I think it uh, pretty much depends uh, if a pharmaceutical company still has bioanalytical laboratories or not. If they have no bioanalytical laboratories anymore, they have to outsource everything, that's clear. They might have still uh, outsourcing staff, outsourcing monitors who had labs before, so they have the skills, can help the CROs developing new assays, but uh, they do not have labs, labs anymore. On the other hand, if a pharmaceutical company still has labs, then the model could be to, to develop the more difficult assays in-house and outsource the routine assays. This could be one model, or to say, okay, we, um, we outsource also the, the difficult assays or the new assays for new molecules, large molecules, to CROs, from which we know that they have the skills. So they are different. It, it really depends on the structure of a DMPK department. If they have bioanalytics, what skills do they still have in-house? Which skills do they have left? This drives the, the model of outsourcing, I think. Well, I think even internally in, in pharma, you know, the, you know, ELISA's nothing new. I mean, people have been quantitating proteins for a very long time. It's, you know, how do we get the people with the proteomics knowledge and merge them and get them into the regulated space where we can do quantitation? It, and it's really important that executing on, on that. Because the knowledge is there, and I think the skill set is there, you know, and Merck has a large vaccine division, so obviously people are quantitating proteins or qualitatively looking at them, but how do we execute on merging that knowledge in an effective way? <coughs> I think also um, in the good old days there's the separation of pharma and CRO. People stay in pharma, people stay in CRO. Now it's very different. That people go from CRO <laughs> to pharma, pharma to CRO. So there is an innate fertilization, a cross-fertilization of ideas, which comes in really handy, particularly when you're not just doing a analysis, you're looking at PK, PD. There is some basic knowledge that I think now people really have, which 30 years ago, if you're an analytical person, you're just an analytical person. You know how to do your GC, your LC, your mass spec, whatever it is. Nowadays, expectation is you need to learn some biology. 
to be useful. And I think, so, you know, try to find the right person at the right place and think through what the laboratory looks like is very different now. When, when we hire people, when we think for, okay, down the road, we need medicinal chemists, we need biologists, um, but we also need people with a little bit more uh, IT savvy so that we can have, because nobody knows what it's going to look like in two years, three years. They change so much, right? So, so just gazing into the crystal ball again, one thing that's been talked about for a very, very long time in bioanalysis is, is automation. And we've never really seen it arrive. You know, we've talked about it a lot. Are we going to, you know, I know out there, I know of some startup companies that are talking about completely automating the bioanalytical laboratory, um, including data processing. Is that a reality? You know, is it something we're ever going to reach, getting some true automation in bioanalysis, or is it something we're never going to achieve? So it's an interesting topic, and you're right, it's been around for a long time. And many labs have made different steps, or certainly invested and purchased equipment to try and address this perspective of what, auto, what uh, automation can provide. And, and, and I know from our own perspective, we struggle with that, but, but having said that, we've then taken on a re recently taken on an approach whereby we're looking at compartmentalized automation approaches. So instead of taking the big bite of the elephant, just actually take it in small steps and using some new novel technology from aliquoting through to sample labeling and think of it holistically. But actually, instead of saying to our managers otherwise that we're gonna get from here to there in a year, two years, and everything is wonderful, actually realize it takes quite an investment and quite a bit of time and knowledge gathering to make those steps. And I think that point builds a lot of trust with the analytical scientists as well. They have a companion that helps them deliver the work more efficiently, something maybe aliquoting for them or something, maybe mm. burning tube labels on, and the whole workflow is quicker, but they trust that more than a, mm. a, a, a bigger robot. And I think one of the things about automation is when, you, when you're getting mixed skill sets in groups, so you want people that maybe know biology <clears throat> and chemistry, automation is a platform that helps that become more accessible because it will allow someone not necessarily to, to be totally skilled in one area but they can access it through something that does automation <clears throat> and, and helps them get a, a competency. And I think that's a really important part of it. Yeah, I think in pharma we start to invest a lot in, in automation, but then yeah, we start to outsource more and more of the clinical work. So the studies we now support in-house have a smaller number of study samples. So there is less a need for automation, although we still do some, to some level automation, but not to the level of thousands and thousands of samples. So I'm wondering whether uh, the CROs should not be the front runners for the automation aspect because the large studies, they go to, to the CROs. Yeah, I agree. From a CRO's perspective, automation is, is, can be interesting, but you have to look very careful where you come to need it. Just what, what you said, you can better do a part, let's say you automate salt phase extraction, than to say, well, we're going to automate completely from plasma until the data we have. Because we, get, we have so many sponsors where we work for, and sometimes it are 50 samples, sometimes it are 100, sometimes 1,000. Even when you have 1,000 samples, you can still do that manually and be almost as fast as, uh, as the machines. And still, what you also have, you get a lot of data and you need to process the data. So if you can do that automation extremely fast, you still 
have another bottleneck, and that is processing the data, getting the data checked, which is still a manual uh, process that needs to be done. So from a CRO, yes, automation can be uh, worthwhile, but you need to, do, to look very carefully where, where you see the advantage. But I'd come back to that point. I mean, Dieter made a point earlier that's really good about the importance of compliance and people that know that. You know, even if it's a small study, I would rather have automation help us and then people can focus on the data integrity, which is a big drive now from, from regulators and the other stuff. You know, if automation helps them think a little bit more about that bit, because that's where we get burnt as much as struggling with, with methods. It's... It's ensuring that the, the package is, is fit for purpose. I can only concur with that, both from the perspective you just shared, but also to understanding what our data means and what it means to our project teams. You're able to spend more time on those activities and those discussions and those dialogues with your DMPK scientists, with your clinician, with your clinical pharmacologist, and that's where the value comes from bioanalysis. Not solely in data generation, but it's actually what the data means. Mm -hmm. And if we're able to use automation to help address some of those challenges, then I think there's, there's benefits there. I, um, so from my perspective, um, automation is always good. Um, I'm not quite sure it, it really addresses a lot of things, okay? Because if you holistically, um, as we get a big clinical package, automation is lovely, right? Because it saves a lot of time. The preclinical package, uh, there's not a lot of samples, or we do a lot of oncology studies that comes in dribbling in, it becomes a bit of a problem, right? Um, and also automation, um, in theory, means capital investment. Um, and every time we talk to um, the farmer sourcing people, uh, the dollar per sample goes down, right? So when the sample goes down, dollars, the capital goes up. There are certain things that you have to give up, right? So we will always invest in automation when it makes sense, but we need to be very careful because from my perspective is that I'd rather have my people look at data um, than spending the time automating small pieces of data. So I would argue, it's, I mean, on certain technology platforms, we're there with the automation. Like if you're talking about ligand binding format, you've got the gyros platform, and that's an automated ligand binding assay. But you obviously need to apply that technology to the appropriate kind of uh, study that you're working on. So if you've got a study with very low sample volume, that technology is very appropriate. Yeah. If you've got um, a large clinical study, yes. But the, the in-between areas, you may be better off just doing a standard um, analytical approach to doing it kind of thing. I think you're right. I think one of the dangers of a lot of automation is you lose flexibility to, to deal with, you know, the kinds of molecular problems you've all been talking about. If, if you've only got one automated process. I think automation in any case is very, very good for bioanalysis, particularly if we apply automation to the uh, extraction of the samples because uh, it allows to have more control on the reproducibility of the method. Uh, but on the other side, you need to have the knowledge inside your, your group in order to know exactly how that systems behave 
and uh, what should be controlled, what you can do with, the, with that instrument, what you shouldn't do with that instrument. Because, for instance, uh, as an example, dilution with an instrument, when the instrument calibrated with water, you use plasma, is something not to do. So, but you need to know very, very well how the, the, the system works and then apply Maybe so my, my interpretation, my intention is to not apply to do everything, but to have some step do it done manually, so that you have always full control of the quality of the, of the acid from one side and from the other side. You have, you are sure about the reproducibility of your of your method and also the minimization of cross contamination that are more easy to be occurred when you handle the, the sample manually, in particular when you have to analyze picogram level. Another kind of automation that I think is very interesting is not the uh, automation of the analysis itself, but um, the uh, electronic lab notebook, mm. just to rule out errors, make the chance of errors less. I think there's a lot to gain in our, in our industry. And do you think that we're going to see some developments in that? I think so, I think so, yeah. I think we, uh, more and more labs are going to be paperless, and going to be paperless means that you need the automation, you need the systems in place in order to handle the large amount of data that are gathering around in the lab that are now all being printed uh, on paper or just being written down by, uh, by the technicians. But it's interesting that I don't think the industry has fully taken up electronic notebook and there must be a reason behind that. And it is a challenge. We, we, uh, especially in the CRO setup, where you have a whole series of different clients wanting things done in different ways. Yeah. Uh, so setting up electronic lab notebooks in that scenario is very, very challenging. I can imagine because we struggled a lot because of the GLP aspects and for the GLP studies, and that was a really big hurdle and a big challenge to implement it. Of course, now they make the decision to do uh, no GLP studies in-house anymore. So we have more, we have a relaxed situation now to deal with the electronic no uh, lab notebook. Mm -hmm. And that works better because the workflow there is very heavy. You have to do a lot of steps and a lot of, of controls. So people were really s suffering there because of the many transitions they needed and it's very strict. And now we are in a non-GLP environment, it, it works better. But do you think that as, as pharma, uh, other Pharma who do not have an electronic notebook would be against a CRO that has an electronic notebook? No. No. no, I would say that there's something quite positive. Now, assuming that it's in place and in place well, there's something very positive about having that because access to information and, and, the, and the uniformity that comes with using a tool like that has a great deal of value. But going back to Liva's point, you know, with our organization, it's this discovery organization that has a laboratory notebook and the regulated group that does not, partially because of those barriers. 